subscribe to stay up to date. Episodes drop every other Monday. All right, welcome to the Matt Watch That podcast, the place for reviews, rants, and randomness. I'm your host, Matt Sarosky, filmmaker, film fan. Each episode, I'm going to watch a movie or TV pilot that I probably should have seen but never got around to. It could be a recent favorite, critic's choice, or cult classic. To join in on the conversation, follow me on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook, at Matt Sarosky. You can subscribe to my YouTube page where I'll post videos and clips from the show. If you have any opinions on what I've discussed or suggestions as to what I should see next, use the hashtag MattWatchThat on social. Before we start, earlier in May, the 2023 Rock and Roll Hall of Fame inductees were announced, and I have some thoughts. In the performer category, we start off with Kate Bush. She is so phenomenally talented and has been making music since she was 16 years old, initially discovered by David Gilmore of Pink Floyd. But this is the Stranger Things effect, am I right? Inevitable Stranger Things reference. If her song Running Up That Hill wasn't included in season 4, would this be happening right now? It should. She totally deserves it. But I think the recent notoriety pushed the issue, thankfully. Missy Elliott is a true artiste. I mean, her tunes are so catchy. Get your freak on, lose control, work it, pass that Dutch. Not only that, she was a producer of other artists, including the late Aaliyah, Destiny's Child, and Sisters with Voices. Let's not forget her music videos, which were so innovative. Especially at a time when music videos were declining in popularity, she kept everyone's interest. Missy is the first female hip-hop artist inducted, and she's a great representative. George Michael, one of the most talented vocalists. I can only imagine what Queen would have been if he was the lead singer after that incredible performance at the Freddie Mercury Tribute Concert in 1992. But we can't forget how good of a songwriter and musician he was as well. He wrote or co-wrote all the songs on his solo albums, and the ones while he was in Wham!, and he could play bass, keyboards, drums, percussion. Super talented. Sheryl Crow was probably one of the hottest singer-songwriters in the 90s. Her debut album, Tuesday Night Music Club, sold over 4 million copies on the backs of singles All I Wanna Do, Leaving Las Vegas, Can't Cry Anymore, and Strong Enough, which is my personal favorite. Now, I've always respected the musicianship of Rage Against the Machine, and if you really want to get pumped up, just blast Killing in the Name of or Bulls on Parade. That should do the trick. But they were never a band that I got into. I did enjoy the offshoots Audio Slave and Prophets of Rage. The inductees are rounded out by Willie Nelson and the Spinners. The Musical Influence Award goes to DJ Cool Herc and Link Ray. The non-performer category, known as the Ahmet Erdogan Award, goes to Don Cornelius, television producer and creator of Soul Train. Under the Musical Excellence Award, you have Al Cooper, musician and producer from the jazz rock group Blood, Sweat, and Tears, Bernie Taupin, lyricist most closely related to his work with Elton John, but also wrote hits for Alice Cooper, Brian Wilson, Olivia Newton-John, most notably We Built This City for Starship, and These Dreams by Heart. Now, here's where I have my problem. This category is supposed to recognize musicians, producers, and others who have worked outside of the spotlight. 
I'm sorry. There was no spotlight big enough for Chaka Khan. She deserves to be included in the performer inductees. And if you don't believe me, check out episode 5 where I talk about her outstanding career. With all that being said, I'm glad she's being recognized in some capacity. So congratulations to the class of 2023, to the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. On to the main attraction. Each review will end with a ranking out of 5 stars. One star is Skip It, two stars Watch at Your Own Risk, three stars Standard Fair, four stars Worth Checking Out, and five stars Must See. Now if I give a title five stars, it doesn't mean I'm comparing it to Casablanca or Jaws or Seinfeld. I rank titles based on other movies or TV series in that genre and at that time period. On this episode of the podcast, I'll be reviewing Spawn from 1997. So how'd I miss it? Well, comic book movies were in a bit of a lull in the late 90s. Sure, there were some bright spots like Blade and the Phantom, but even those couldn't overwhelm the stench left behind by Batman and Robin, Barbed Wire, Steel with Shaquille O'Neal, the Crow sequel City of Angels, and the appropriately named Judge Dredd. So, needless to say, my appetite for superheroes waned. It was directed by Mark A.Z. DePay, who helmed TV movies Pixel Perfect and Halloween Town High, direct-to-video features Garfield Gets Real, Garfield's Fun Fest, and Garfield's Pet Force, and was a visual effects artist on The Abyss, Back to the Future 2, Terminator 2 Judgment Day, and Jurassic Park. The screenplay was written by Alan B. McElroy, who scribed Halloween 4, The Return of Michael Myers, Wrong Turn, Tekken, and Fractured. It was based on a screen story that he co-wrote with the director. The comic was created by Todd McFarlane and published by Image Comics. It stars Michael Jai White as CIA operative Al Simmons and his alter ego Spawn. He was born in New York City and started training in jiu-jitsu at the age of four. He would go on to master nine different styles of martial arts and hold seven black belts. He started out as a special education teacher before transitioning to acting. Spawn wouldn't be his first comic book role. He appeared in an uncredited role in Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles 2, The Secret of the Ooze. His breakthrough would be in the 1995 TV movie Tyson, starring as the baddest man on the planet. After parts in Two Days in the Valley, Exit Wounds, and Soul Food, he would return to the world of comics as the voice of Doomsday in Justice League and Justice League Unlimited, and appear as Gamble in The Dark Knight. John Leguizamo portrays arch-enemy clown-slash-violator. Born in Bogota, Colombia, his family emigrated to New York City when he was three years old. After graduating high school, he enrolled in NYU's Tisch School of the Arts, but dropped out to embark on a stand-up comedy career. His first role was in the music video Borderline by Icon Madonna. He appeared in three episodes of Miami Vice, before transitioning to the big screen in Casualties of War, Die Hard 2, and Regarding Henry. He would use his comedic skills as Luigi in the Super Mario Bros. movie, and Tu Wong Fu, Thanks for Everything, Julie Newmar, a versatile actor who's appeared in comedies, dramas, action, and animation. This is something to look out for. John Leguizamo underwent over two hours of makeup and prosthetics to transform into clown, and had to squat down for hours at a time to account for the character's four-foot height. So let's jump into it. 
covert operative Al Simmons infiltrates a military base in Hong Kong and uses a rocket launcher to assassinate Joseph Esamfar, the leader of the Algerian Revolutionary Front, and unknowingly 26 innocent civilians. Nations denounce the attack and protests erupt across the globe. At the A6 headquarters in the USA, Director Jason Wynn meets with Clown, who he's made a deal with to help recruit Al Simmons for a special project. When he returns home from the mission, Simmons confronts Wynn, believing the site was clear of civilians, which the director calls an unfortunate but necessary sacrifice. Simmons announces he wants out of the operation, which Wynn agrees, after one last assignment. He wants Simmons to penetrate a North Korean refinery where biomechanical weapons are being produced, and destroy it. Simmons agrees, and during the mission, is double-crossed by Wynn and killed by Agent Jessica Priest. His soul is transported to Rat City, where Malbolgia, the Lord of Darkness, offers him a deal to return to Earth in exchange for leading Hell's army. Here's a quote without context. I'm gonna cut you into 50 pieces and mail you to every state. Spawn was so cheesy, it could have been a craft factory. Thank you. It opened with a voiceover explaining the world of the characters, which, if you're a frequent listener, know that's one of my least favorite things. It's called lazy writing. And most of that information was reiterated later in the movie, so it's also completely pointless. The opening credits reminded me of a mix between Seven and the series La Femme Nikita. Kinda scratchy, names jump cutting. That was the it thing in the late 90s, along with Beanie Babies and the Rachel haircut. I thought the acting was pretty good. Everyone took the roles seriously, even when they had to say the lines, she was shot in the head. Yeah, she's dead. Michael Jai White did a good job as Al Simmons and Spawn. The campiness and snarkiness was left to comedian John Leguizamo, who seemed to have fun in the part of Clown. Martin Sheen gives the movie some legitimacy and heft. The motivations of the characters are well-defined. The makeup is impressive, especially on the characters of Spawn and Clown. I'd only seen images of the main character with the mask on, so I didn't realize he had like a Deadpool vibe. You know, without the sense of humor. Now the special effects, they left little to be desired. For 1997, these might have been advanced, but have not aged well. I think it's one of the reasons why the movie hasn't endured the way that other comic book films from the 90s have. That, and, uh, it's not really great. Even if I didn't know the filmography of the director, this feels like a straight-to-video film. In some transitions, they had fire wipe across the screen, or Spawn's cape, I couldn't tell the difference. That's not to say that I didn't like it. It's a breezy 90 minutes, but it didn't reach the potential of the Todd McFarlane series. Now for a little trivial trivia. This was the second feature film to star an African-American as a comic book superhero. The first was Meteor Man from 1993, which was written, directed, and starred Robert Townsend. Spawn was produced by Clint Goldman and filmed at Hollywood Center Studios in California and parts of New York City. The cinematography was captured by Guillermo Navarro, whose filmography includes From Dusk Till Dawn, The Long Kiss Goodnight, Spy Kids, Pan's Labyrinth, Night at the Museum, and won an Oscar for Best Achievement in Cinematography for El Labyrintho del Fauno. It was co-edited by Todd Bush, who worked on October Sky, Lake Placid, Spider-Man Homecoming, Guardians of the Galaxy Volume 3, and Michael N. New, whose credits include Rocky V, Highlander Endgame, The Ring 2, and Sleepy Hollow. 
The score was composed by Graham Revel, who wrote the music for The Crow, The Craft, Pitch Black, Laura Croft Tomb Raider, Sin City, and Eon Flux. The soundtrack features songs by Metallica, Silverchair, Korn, The Prodigy, Filter, and one of my favorites, Stabbing Westward. This was probably the highlight of the entire movie. I'm not sure what that says. The runtime is 1 hour 36 minutes. It had a budget of $45 million and grossed $88 million at the box office. I'm torn on this one. I want to give it 2.5 out of 5 stars, but I feel like I'm being a jerk about it. It could be 3 stars because I did enjoy it, I wasn't bored by it, but there was a lot of cheesiness with this movie. A little too much for me. Either way, add half a star if you're a fan of comic book movies. It's definitely good, could have been better. Ton of potential here. If you've seen Spawn and have opinions on the movie, let me know what you think using the hashtag MattWatchThat. Moving right along, each episode, I'm going to post clips that I think people should watch. It could be movie trailers, music videos, interviews, or something completely random. Search for my YouTube page and there will be a playlist called Matt Watch That Playback. Last season on the podcast, I did a playback that featured 10 scientifically impossible places that exist, which kind of makes them possible. But this time, we're going back to the well. We're looking at 15 unbelievable places that actually exist. We're talking about lands that look like they're from Avatar or Star Wars or Tim Burton's imagination, but are actually on this planet. From underwater waterfalls in the Mariches, to the Tiazzi Mountains in China, to the Crooked Forest in Poland, to Fly Geyser in Nevada. That's Nevada. Now, I'm surprised that no places were listed from Iceland, because I consider that one of the most naturally beautiful places in the world. Other places might have these features, but there's something so unique about their landscapes. Hot springs, the northern lights, waterfalls, caves, glaciers. And it's got the only beach I ever want to visit that has black sand and glacial ice. So both of these videos are available in the Matt Watch That Playback playlist on YouTube. Check it out. Now it's time for the recommendation. Yes, that's the word recommendation with Matt in the middle. I'm going to end each podcast with my own recommendation of a movie or TV series. Today I'm talking about... The Atom Project. Directed by Sean Levy, who helmed Night at the Museum, Date Night, Real Steel, Free Guy, and is a producer on Stranger Things. Inevitable Stranger Things reference. It tells the story of pilot Adam Reed, who attempts to travel back in time to the year 2018 to save his wife, but ends up crash landing in 2022, where he meets his 12-year-old self, who's still mourning the recent passing of his father. Together, they have to stop a dystopian future under their father's former business partner while grappling with their own past. It was originally written by T.S. Nolan as a spec script, which was bought by Paramount Pictures with Tom Cruise attached to Star. Then it moved to Netflix where Jonathan Tropper wrote the script based on previous drafts by Jennifer Flackett and Mark Levin. I've read the screenplay. It's available online to download for free. If you're a writer, it's a great film to compare with the finished product because it's so different. And if you're like me, I always get frustrated when I feel my screenplays aren't perfect, but this shows how much scenes, storylines, and characters change during production that your script is never complete. 
it's ever-evolving. It stars Ryan Reynolds as the elder Adam Reed. If you've seen one affable Ryan Reynolds performance, you've probably seen them all, but I really felt there was an extra layer of emotion with this character. He really showed some depth here. His younger version is played by Walker Scobell. He was perfectly cast, had all of Ryan Reynolds' mannerisms, cadence, and sense of humor. It helped that Deadpool 2 is his favorite movie, and he's watched it over a hundred times, having memorized all of the anti-hero's lines. Both convincingly play the main character, Adam Reed. There isn't a disconnection between their performances the way I felt in Shazam, where the younger version of Billy Batson is pretty serious and straight-laced, but his alter-ego adult superhero is very childlike and goofy. I felt they could have done a better job there. Walker Scobell was cast in the lead role of the Percy Jackson series on Disney+, which I am so looking forward to. That's such a great book series that deserves a faithful adaptation. Their parents are portrayed by Jennifer Garner and Mark Ruffalo, which is their first collaboration since 2004's 13 Going on 30, where they also played love interests. The cast is rounded out by Zoe Saldana as Laura and Catherine Keener as Maya Sorian. Behind the Batman, it's my favorite movie of 2022. It has humor and heart. It's surprisingly emotional. There's a lot about parents and children there, and I didn't expect to get as choked up with it. I really can't express how much I enjoyed this movie. It's one of those, if I have nothing else to watch, I'll just play it in the background. The soundtrack is really good, with Gimme Some Lovin' and Let My Love Open the Door. I really like the score by Rob Simonson. His most recent effort was The Whale, which I haven't seen yet, but really looking forward to. But he also did Ghostbusters Afterlife, the series Life in Pieces, Love, Simon, Foxcatcher. He seems to be the it guy. This film is a bit nostalgic. It reminds me of the 80s films that I watched growing up. Yes, there's a bit of time travel, so you automatically think back to the future, but it definitely does its own thing. I think that Sean Levy is really as close to the spirit of Steven Spielberg. All of his films are based in reality, but have a sense of wonder to them. And this is no exception. The Atom Project had a budget of $116 million, and every dollar is apparent on screen. It's currently streaming on Netflix. That's all for this edition of Matt Watch That. Thanks for listening to me babble. You can follow me on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook at Matt Sarosky. You can subscribe to my YouTube page where I'll post videos and clips from the show. If you have any opinions on what I've discussed or suggestions as to what movie or TV pilot I should see, use the hashtag MattWatchThat on social. Head over to MattSaroski.com for the latest news and updates, and come back next time for the reviews, rants, and randomness. But this is the Stranger of Things fa- A things. A Stranger of Things. He appeared in an ununcredited- Ununcredited. Jeez. To the Tiazzi Mountains in, Tuch- in China.